You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Our podcast today is kindly sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Bloom Forge. There are so many farriers in the world that I know that once they've been shoeing 10 or 20 years, they start to develop new ideas. They have not just pet theories, but they have ideas for products that they think will serve the industry, serve the horse, and hopefully make them some money. But when I interviewed Derek Poupard, I came across a man who actually has had three successful ideas which are being used in the industry more and more. So that's quite remarkable. Uh, He's a real ideas man. He thinks things through and you'll see when he gives his answer to the deep philosophical question why really he's successful at developing products. He's invented a 3D printing system for making hoof pads. He is promoting his very own casting system and he was there at the beginning and had the initial idea for the product that's now known as Former Hoof. So we're going to look at that. Uh, Derek's a South African, but he spent time working in America and then in the Middle East in Dubai and also in the UK. He works for Godolphin, which uh, could well be the biggest racing organisation in the world and he shoes their very elite horses. You'll see in this podcast that uh, we not only discuss the skill that a racehorse farrier or plater if you want to call them that has to use in shoeing a racehorse but we also get really deeply into a barefoot debate and I was although I've known Derek for a number of years I didn't realise how strongly he felt about this, and we were on two different sides. We also developed the idea of where glue shoeing has gone, and whether it will be uh, replaced by casting. I'm sure you'll enjoy this podcast as much as I did in recording it. I've come up to the fabulous Molten Paddock stables of Godolphin here in Newmarket to have a chat with longtime colleague Derek Poupard. And of course, Derek is an ideas man, to put it simply. And we're going to go through some of his ideas on casting, on repair of hoof, and on the early development of former hoof. So we've got lots to talk about. Welcome, Derek. Thanks, Simon. Wonderful to have you here. No, no, it's great. Thank you for the invite. I've, I've had a good tour of the of the stables, and we've seen you cast a foot. So we're going to talk about that later. Uh, but the first thing is uh, the, the obvious history that I do is: how did you actually get into shoeing horses? Oh, I think typical. Grew up. My mother was a horse rider. Um, I had a horse from the age of four or five years old and evolved from there. And I started trimming when I was about 14 years old. So it was just a natural evolution okay. of going through that. 
And where you're in South Africa? In South Africa, in Hillcrest, Summerfeld, you know, same place where Robbie Dawson is. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was the horsey area of, of, of Natal. Of but you must have been there then before they moved, because they were originally trained, the main training area was called Newmarket, wasn't it? That's correct. And they, been, yeah. they moved the whole lot up there, didn't they? They did, up to Summerfeld. I joined just after, probably about two or three years after that, in, in, in mid-80s. But you were already there? I was. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So this Perhaps wasn't a plan to move the horses to you, the mountain coming to Mohammed? No, then. definitely not. No, no, no. At that stage, I was a very insignificant uh, young farrier that put lots of ideas. And, and some of felt, of course, I was there, I don't know when I was there, last year, wasn't I, sometime. Um, there's a beautiful view down these rolling hills, isn't there? All the way down to, I'm assuming, Durban and the sea. That's correct. No, it's beautiful. It, 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 it looks down through the valley. Because uh, Summerfelt's at probably at the peak, looking down into the into okay. the valley of Durban. But that must yeah. be a big valley because oh, I couldn't see the other side. No, no, it is okay. huge. So, so that's where you were born, and um, so how long did you shoe in in that area for? Well, I started off with a chap called Dave Turner. You know, he was my master farrier in the days, um, and then we became part. I was after two years, I was a partner of Dave's, and we were a very good team, Turner and Popart. He made you partner after two he years. Did, he did, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and then we ran a partnership together for eight years, yeah. and then I decided I'd like to, you know, spread my wings and, and go on my own. So I took, I had a team of about five guys and, uh, and went on my own. And that's when I actually, well, I met up with Steve O'Grady then, didn't I? And that opened because up Because he, he trained as a vet in South Africa, didn't he? He did, and then he was invited back by Baker McVeigh. Yeah. Um, he actually stayed with John McVeigh, I remember, just around the corner from me. And I have to explain, for those that don't know, Baker McVeigh are a huge equine veterinary practice, aren't they? Which even has um, Global, branches one. here in, in, in England well, and in the US, it's, it's down in Wellington, yeah, all over. France, everywhere, you know, Cape Town, you, know, you yeah. name it. Uh, that's but they didn't McVeigh. then, did they? No, no, that's that was where a they small started. little branch and, and they invited Steve over to, to as the podiatrist. Yeah. And I mean, I hadn't made a shoe. You know, back in the days we were platers. Yeah. I hadn't known what a forge was, or you know, it, it was foreign to me. And uh, and that's when I got introduced to it. You know, um, Steve O'Grady took me under his wing and said, "Listen, I'm going to teach you." And then talked me into coming to America, which I think was the pinnacle of of of, of my stay. That started my whole career, in my opinion. Was, yeah. uh, was was America. And, and whereabouts in the states? In Virginia. Did you go? In Virginia. Um, well. It, in the Plains, Virginia, as we are based, and uh, it's it's probably the English riding capital of America. Yeah. Um, because it was all there was no Western riding; it was all eventers, show jump, show jumping, polo. It was the elitist. They don't think of themselves as cowboys, there. Do they? Definitely not. No. no you wouldn't find a cowboy saddle within ten miles of Middleburg. Let me tell you. <laughs> Is that right? So, so how long did you work with Steve there for? Well, Steve and I were. Six years we worked together. I had a farrier shop at my house, and we used to bring horses there and work together. I had a very good business going out there, but unfortunately, I couldn't stay in America through visa problems. Um, I had to leave, unfortunately, and then ended up back in South Africa. Okay, so you went back to South Africa. Then how is it that you ended up uh, working for Godolphin? Did you get... You, you, you got an invite to go to Dubai, or was oh, there something in between? So strange. I'll I tell you what happened. Ian Pope got a phone call one day from a veterinary friend of mine who was actually at the time Steve O'Grady's partner back in Virginia when I first got there, Jeannie Wardron. And Jeannie Wardron thought Ian Pope was me. Phoned him up and said, listen, there's a position for this Arab trainer, endurance trainer, that they'd like you to come and work for them. And he called me up. 
because you know, you know, we were involved with the Fairies Association. He called me up, and I, I was in, I think, in Dubai within two weeks. So, so there was no thought in your mind that I'm taking Popey's job. I did no. This was this was before this was before Godolphin. I mean, I'm talking about. I went to endurance. Yeah, but you said they thought yeah. they were talking well, yes. to Ian Pope. Absolutely. No, no, no. But does, uh, it, does he know this story? He does. Absolutely. Oh, what a pity! I wanted to be the because first I'll tell to you tell what, him. Because, I, because it was so funny. Ian actually came up with uh, with Tom Reynolds, and they stayed at my place in Hillcrest. I lived on a golf course, and we had a Ferris convention. And on the way back, we dropped Ian off, and he said, "Guys, I'm actually going to Dubai," and I didn't even know Dubai existed at that stage. So yeah. it was between the time he got the job in Dubai and he moved over to Dubai that he got the phone call and, and referred me. So, yeah. So I can actually thank Ian twice because I'm also here because of him. So if you, you went there and you're doing endurance horses. Yeah. And was that your first experience of endurance? It was. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, shoeing is shoeing. Yeah. Endurance horses is just, it's repetitive, 120 kilometres you know, of keeping shoes on and keeping horses sound. Um, I think I've got a third in the in, in the in the in the, uh, the long distance cup or the King's Cup, or they called it in the first in the first three months. Yeah. But it was not my cup of tea. Hey, I was living in the desert. My family was going to come out and stay with me, and I was very lucky enough that Hassan bin Ali was my trainer, and he said, "Listen, you know, I'll support you. Get a job in town with the racing yard because racing was my forte. It's great. Yeah. My first twelve years was just pure race horses." But I always got the impression that those farriers that got the job in Dubai. Normally, their first staging post was out in the desert with the endurance. It was, and then and then you have to work your way into town and <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Was Colin, all of them, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, it's because endurance is there's so many yards. There's probably three thousand endurance horses. Yeah. So you can imagine how many westernised farriers they've got out there. So for every westernised farrier, they've got two or three um, Asian assistants. Yeah, and, so and most of those. Way. Assistants come from Pakistan and India. Pakistan and India. I'll tell you right now, they are such good hands, eh? I mean, they can they can mimic. They they are the fastest learners I've known. I mean, I remember making a shoe up the one day, and the guy. I mean, after one look, could mimic what I'd done. Very yeah. good copying. And, they, and and I found that fascinating. And and over and over again, because I've worked a lot with them, they are very very good. Yeah, and, skillful. And, yeah, skillful people. Very yeah. much so. Yeah, and of course, back in India and Pakistan. The farrier doesn't get a reward for their skills, do no, they? Unfortunately, not. No, I used to go out to India to work on, uh, especially one stud farm, and you know these guys earned nothing, and they, there was no respect for them. And yet, the people bringing me out and paying me, probably for a day, what they earn in a lifetime. Well, I'm in a year. No, I'm just saying, you're making a dollar a horse for goodness' sake. Yeah, no, that was the maximum. Yeah, and. Um, and I, I always used to say to their bosses, and that, you know, if you gave these people more respect, then you'd get an even better job. But I couldn't blame the farriers. Who, who would care about the horses when you're getting so little? Can't. They're surviving first. So it's survival, I think, in India. So I know, I know, for certainly the Indian farriers, to get to the Middle East and get a job there was their dream. And I'll tell you, in, in, in Dubai now, I think a lot of the, when, when, when I left, and my, my Indian uh, assistant took over as the head farrier, yeah. very good hand, Ratan Singh, at, at Zabil Stable, he took over from me there. Um, I think Ian Pope's assistant took over from him and he left, and also Rob Stevenson's assistant took over yeah. and he left. So they, they, once so they they'd been taught their skill, yeah. they were very good at what they did. Yeah. So I think that's very... Yeah. So he arrived at... Uh, Godolphin, and just to tell those listeners that don't know about Godolphin, it's 
biggest racing setup in the world? Well, I would say between us and Coolmore, but I think Sheikh Mohammed's probably got, as an individual owner, has the most horses yeah. in the world. I think it's 3,000 horses, something to that degree. Yeah, it's really so huge. vast setup. And I, I have to say, you may not be allowed to say this, but for many years they underperformed. We all heard about the races won, but by the value of horses and the number of horses, we can't say that in the last few years. And a lot of that is down to your trainer here, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And so of these 3,000 horses, I know you have more than this, but you've got a yard here of 53. Was it you, Tom? Born 1 is 53, Born 2 is 53. So we've got 110, and this yeah. is the main bar. But and these are... Yeah. These are the peak, aren't they? This of is the, the pyramid. Lead, the lead yeah. The and you, you showed me a row of horses there, and you were telling me one after another that was group or yeah. grade horses, as they would say in America. But you also told me how many in the top 30 horses in the world you had got in your yard. Four within 10 stables. Yeah. yeah. Within 10 stables, four of the top 30 horses in the world. And you also showed me one, which I'm a bit disappointed with you, that slipped from. Uh, the world's top-ranked horse to the world's second-top-ranked horse. Yeah. You know, I could have... Uh, no, you let me down there, Very Derek. disappointing, very yeah. disappointing. Yeah. But anyway, so fabulous horses. You have everything here. The horses have everything they need, which includes good farriery, doesn't it? Well, so I that's your so. part. Well, <laughs> you're, listen, you have a beautiful forge here. Hopefully we'll put out some pictures. It, it's a real cross between the modern and the traditional. And, um, and But you, you have good safe shoeing areas, well lit. The number of shoeing areas that farriers have, that I've seen better lighting in a coal mine, yep. you know. But this is well lit, bright, so, so excellent really. And, and you have a dedicated holder then? I do, yep. Gilson's my dedicated holder. He, we go around, check horses together. He knows the horses yeah. as well as I do. Um, and I think that's very, very important, yeah. And so what's your normal routine here? Well, Starting, you know, in the morning. In the morning now, if the horse is pulled out at 6.20, I would be here at 10 to 6. We'd yeah. like to give you half an hour before yeah. that. Full, you know, and, and then we check around at least three times a week. Monday, yeah. Wednesday, Friday, you go through every single horse. Yeah. And then you make a list for two days. And then and you just keep, see, on top of the horses all the time. So there's no stone unturned. You, you can pick up the small things. But, but for those that don't do a racing card, you also have to factor in if you know the horse is going to run in 10 days. Absolutely. And that's always the thing in racing. If it needs shoeing, but you're thinking, or oh, can it go until I put the aluminium plates on? And so, so that's part it's of the skill of a racing farrier. It's the biggest it? juggle because you know, you've got your runners list um, and you've got a five-day entry or six-day entry. You know, you've got to try to work out can you can this horse go yeah. <laughs> for five days or you know. uh, So, Derek, you are here in this fabulous yard, but it is surrounded by tarmac roads, isn't it? Yep. So, for that reason that you often get this, uh, you, you have to schedule the shoeing, don't you, before they run, because you can't put aluminium shoes on a week before they run, can you? A week no. maximum, I think. I, w I would say, I'd like, to be, I'd like to say, if we can, the day before or two days before, so that they're all sharp. Yeah. But um, it's probably five or six days maximum. They won't go longer yeah. than that. So that means if you know one's running in 10 days, but it's worn its shoes out, you still have to put steel on, even right. if it's only... Yeah. Listen, if it, to be fair, if, it, if it's going to run in, in 15 days, I'll put plates, plates. If it's going to run in 30 days, I'll go steel plates. Yeah. Um, just to try and balance that, because plates are easier to... Um, well, lighter nail, um, lighter yeah. on the horse itself. So we do juggle that. You know, it, is, it is part of the juggling act of keeping a racing yard going like this. Yeah, as I say, it isn't... The, the skill of plate in a racehorse isn't just 
nailing to these, you know, the thoroughbred, which quite rightly deserves its reputation for a thinner wall, is this this factor of, of, of when they run and when they compete. And I know most farriers work with competition horses to a certain extent, but in with with racing, it's particularly important, especially in the way our horses are trained in Europe. That that's part of the various skills is, is, is looking ahead Management. a week, two weeks, a month ahead uh, and keeping on top of things like that. All right, so you've obviously got this great job in, in racing here and how many years have you actually been doing this? Ten, years in, Godolphin? Ten years in Godolphin, uh, yeah. five years in Dubai before that, working okay. for Zabil Stable, also in a racing yard. Yeah. So 15 years basically for Sheikh Mohammed because he owns Zabil, that was part yeah. of the palace grounds. So, and you, you, know, you go back for three months of the year, don't you? You go yeah, back just after Christmas. And normally Boxing Day, you know, about a week yeah. before the racing starts, because all the horses are barefoot going into Dubai. Yeah. Um, and then I will then go there a week before and then stay there until the last meeting at the end of March. So, it's so I, I was going to ask you about this, because you said the horse that was just leaving here for Dubai, yeah. uh, you'd take the shoes off. I know you put some hoop casting on, yeah. but basically it's going back to be barefoot to continue training. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But you then go over there and you plate them to run? On the day they run. On the day they run, okay. On the morning that they run. No pressure run. then, Derek? No, not at all. But to be absolutely, the hoof wall, once they've been barefoot for the two or three months before I get there, yeah. they have got a wall you can drive at E5 now. Into. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, but barefooting a racehorse yeah. and not having the nails in the foot and having the... the the volar support or the, you know, the core support that you've got yeah. there, it changes the foot completely. You know, it gives you a thicker wall. It's no well, doubt I don't want us to develop this conversation, but we always used to call it a virgin foot. Yeah, we go. Is it? If it hadn't had a nail in it. And when, I'm, I'm telling you right now, when, when I do nail them on the morning of the race, I think I'll leave the dust on. Yeah. You know, basically, all I do is put the nails in and put the shoe on. Yeah. Because it's on for such a short amount of time. I don't rasp it, I don't dress it, I don't, when I'm clinching it, it's minimum. So when I take the shoe off the next day, it's still a bit. Okay. So you're, you're obviously a barefoot convert. I am, to be fair. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so just tell me this, then why put plates on them to race? Rules. It's the rules of racing. Okay. If it wasn't for the rules of racing, I, I, would, I would gladly race them. So you think the horse would perform as well? Absolutely. But there's no evidence of that, and all the evidence is that that shoes give, it isn't just protection they yeah. give. Traction. Well, if we want to divide, I prefer to divide traction yeah. into uh, grip and purchase. So grip is stops the horse sliding, yeah. and we know some slide is good, yeah. but purchase is how it pulls itself through the ground. And a shoe gives a horse additional purchase. That is the reason you don't see elite level show jumpers, for example, without shoes on. Because don't you think they've tried it? No. And don't you think they've tried racing? Um, well, listen, I think racing, yes. If I, if I took a shod foot yeah. and, and took the shoes off and tried to barefoot race it, it would fall apart. If I've taken that foot and conditioned it to a barefoot, where it's got the thick frog, it's got the colour's foot. I'm not talking um, about yeah. the condition of yeah. hoof, I'm talking about the, the hoof's ability to enhance the performance, or the shoe's ability, I should say, to enhance the, the performance of the horse. In the same way, is that however gifted a runner needs running shoes on. Yeah. However so, gifted... Zalabad, don't forget Zalabad. Yeah, and what happened to her? <laughs> no, she, would be, she would lay in. No, Simon, no, listen, 
I agree with you in, in, in the sense that of, of the grip or whatever, but you know, when I first started this, I, the jockeys that rode the horses were very dubious. They said, yeah. no, because our track out there is, is almost a U-shape. Yeah. And when you've got a dewy, grassy track, U-shape, barefoot, and you're galloping, and you're galloping fast, yeah. the first thing you think is, have I got grip? But I've never, not once have they come back, they've all come back and said, the horse is feeling the ground, it's actually, yeah. they're, they're actually in touch with the ground. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, there are, there's a lot to be said about that, and I think a lot can be done in the future to do that. But I think if every horse raced barefoot, they're all on the same ground. You know, and it would well, be healthy, healthy. You know, if, if every horse was barefoot, all on the same, all on the same surface. I, I know you're you're in the autumn of your career. Yeah. You're not like me in the winter <laughs> of, of your career. But you're gonna you're, you're gonna get fifty percent of the racehorse players made redundant oh. through this. Yeah, but they've been charged three times more to trim them. But it's <laughs> in human nature. All right. Well, we'll leave that one. But that's a it's a good discussion yeah. about. Yeah. Why, why the horses uh, have shoes, not yeah. just for protection? And Simon, this is, you know, yeah. again, this is my opinion on what I'm doing with my horses. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying this is how it should be done. I'm saying this is what I'm doing, and it's helping my horses. Yeah. Because when I bring them back here, they're a different horse, foot-wise. So it's yeah, a I, have, I, have no doubt, yeah. I have no doubt that, you know, the horse wasn't born with shoes yeah. on. And for at least the last 25 years of my career, 90% of my work was trimming, not yeah. shoeing. But... The point I'm making is, if it enhances the performance, that's part of our job, yep. to try and get winners. Absolutely. Anyway, I look forward to the day you talk the trainer here in <laughs> running and barefoot. But Okay, let's move on. So, I want to uh, explore some of the things that you've come up with, because, as you know, I, you're definitely an ideas man, and you obviously are intrigued by this job, and you're always thinking it through, and thinking about how a new product might help well, the horse and, and farriers. So you brought me a, a prototype product many years ago, the quick, the ten quick year, shoe. Ten years ago, yep. Just ten, ten years, years ago. Three months ago, yep. See, I can even remember the horse I used it on because she's passed away now. It was a, a laminitic broodmare called Rubies from Burma. <laughs> and, and so, well, you describe how that product worked. Well, basically, it was an in-situ mould that you placed around the horse's foot um, and you injected a urethane into the mould, into the cavity of the mould, and then when you remove the mould afterwards, you are left with the semblance of a shoe or a foot protection. Yeah. And that, you know, it was, it, and the concept just pretty, it came, came out through necessity. You know, when, yeah. when I actually came up with the idea, it was, I had horses that couldn't hold nails. In, in, in summer in, in Dubai, with, uh, with horses being watered three or four times a day, washed down, the humidity, the horses' mm. feet would break apart. So that's why I came up with this. It's just as something to put... Well, I have to tell you that that horse really improved. You know, she was an old chronic laminitic mare. Uh, she'd had another product on her foot, another type of glue shoe um, that had contracted the heels. So she had this uh, contracted, very unthoroughbred shaped foot, pockets of serum, you know, chronic laminitic. And in, in your shoe, you could actually see the hooves open over the weeks that I used it and she was comfortable but there was one thing that let the product down wasn't there the product itself well the, the, the glue <laughs> the glue because the yeah. it, it went brittle and, 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 and shattered didn't it and oh. so you would have a great result for two or three weeks and then they would start to break up Simon so, I've been through every Euro I had I think I had six different countries sending me samples yeah. of urethane 
and I've tested every single one of them. I mean, it, you have no idea how many I've got. And that was the key. The key was the product. And, I mean, Robbie, Rob Stevenson. Well, we're going to move yeah, on okay, we'll go how on it's there. developed. Yeah, okay. But, you know, I think, you know, the simple ideas are always the best. Yeah. And holding or strapping a mould around the foot and injecting into it, so it glued the product on, and it, as you say, it created, you, you thought you've got a horseshoe there at In the situ. end. Yep. Yeah. So that was a prototype. So how come you stopped being involved with that? Well, predominantly as a racing farrier, it is not a racing horse, in my opinion. No. It is not for racing horses because I had product failure. I'm, I'm not saying the new product has is, is got that problem, but I had that problem where yeah. it kept breaking. And you cannot risk a million-dollar horse having a breakage in a gallop. No. Because, you know, it would just absolutely do it. So, in my opinion, this, is, this was a fantastic therapeutic application, but it wasn't my path that I was going. Okay. So you couldn't have the time to develop it as you would wish. So then you moved on to your bro- brother-in-law. No, no, Rob. No, Rob Stevenson not my brother-in-law. Rob Stevenson was my colleague okay. at the stables. In, in Why the did I think that? I don't know. No, and I'll tell you right now, Rob was with me the first day I ever put yeah. an institution. And you, the mould that I had was the most basic rubber mould yeah. with a cavity inside of it that we put together and Rob was hooked from day one. And he was with me from day one. So he's now moved on because I've yep. already, as you know, done yep. a podcast yep. uh, with Rob and his partner. And so he's moved on to former who. Yep. But in principle, yep. it is the same idea, isn't it? It is, but well, Rob's just evolved it. And he, what he's tried to do is overcome, it seemed to me, because I did some with him, yep. he, he's tried to overcome this problem of a, a brittle polymer urethane yep. And so they put a webbing in it now, don't they? That's correct. And that would be like, uh, it's, it's the same as, as putting reinforcing in, in concrete, Re- concrete or, yep. or, or fiberglass cloth, you know, into acrylic. It, it, it's all doing the same thing. It's Hold giving it. some tensile strength. Where there is yeah. 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 So, so that's, that's moved on. And, of yep. course, they're great PR people yep. and they've done great work in spreading the idea around the world, haven't they? And, and, still I, and I would still continue. say, if I've got a horse with a problem, I need to pick a PA up, and it yeah. was a static, it wasn't, a, it wasn't in, in work, I would still say that's probably the fastest way you're going to get a horse's PA up yeah. um, in a very, very short amount of time. Yeah. So now you've moved on to casting, haven't you? I have. I, I, <laughs> and I'll tell you right now, when I was in, when I was in Dubai, I actually, I actually created a, a strap-on boot, of all things, yeah. out of Elasticon. Um, and I had horses working on it, but it rubbed too much. So I've always been trying to think of ways to, of, of putting shoes on without nailing or without the, the infiltration of nails into a hoof wall. Yeah. Um, and then I came up, to, I used Equicross for the first time. I found it very bulky. Um, I found the application that I was... Yeah, because I was going to say, there has been casting of hooves. Oh, it's been going on for probably 50 years. But you've developed your own method... Have you, have you had to develop it's new... It's, it's my product. Yes, I know it is, Derek. And, uh, don't worry, we'll put out where people can contact you for it, because I know it's going great guns. You told me you're already selling... Well, I'm not going to give a figure, but a, a really quite an impressive amount of units per month. I am, yeah. So, so don't worry, we'll put that on the podcast. But I know it's your product. But what is substantially different in, in this? Is it the method, or is it actually the material... What is it? That I would you say both. So the, the material, it's a lighter material for racing. Yeah. Know, the one before is a bit coarser. So this is a finer grain fiberglass with, a, with slightly more adhesive 
um, but also cures in a quicker time. Yeah. So because time is money. No, well, well, yeah, but it's, all, it's not just the money thing. Yeah. Horses, the, there's, the, their patience only lasts so long. And, and also, I'm, I'm trying to make it more cost effective because I think it's at least two thirds cheaper than in the average. Okay. Uh, Equicost. So I have made it more cost effective um, and, and readily available now. So. It, and what is the name of your? It's called Hoofcost. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you noticed, all you did was gave the name of a, a rival product yeah. there, Equicost, which is a. Yeah. You've just done it again. Yeah, All right, so Hoofcast yeah, is, is your new product, yeah. which I just saw demonstrated. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to put out some material with this podcast so people can see. But, you know, you were very keen on the horse we saw, typical thoroughbred with very short, low heels, and you were reinforcing the heels. So this wasn't just strengthening the wall, because, as I said to you, from my opinion, it actually had quite a, a healthy heel wall. Yeah. It's just a poor shape, wasn't it? Correct. And, and because it's one of the horses that's going to Dubai this weekend, um, I'd like, if a horse goes from shod to barefoot, and it has a frog that's slightly prouder than the hoof wall itself, if I put this horse in training in a, sand, in a sandy situation, I'll have trauma on that frog. Mm-hmm. So by, by making the hoof wall and the frog at the same level and creating a break almost on the, on the heels, yeah. rather than just the frog itself, if I can dissipate the force across the entire foot, you know, I'll have a lot more success. It'll, it'll transform to a barefoot much quicker. Well, it, it was a great demo, so thanks for showing me that. Thank you. Even if I'm never going to use it myself, now <laughs> I have retired from active life as a farrier. But, um, so tell me, do you think this will replace gluing? Well, it has in my time. Uh, in, in this yard, and I would say a lot of the, the, the yards in Newmarket, because, you know, I, I used to love gluing horses. I, I've glued hundreds if not thousands of them because that was my forte but if you take an aluminium shoe and you glue it on and you and your horse that shoe wears out in two weeks and you re-glue it and you wear after the third gluing you end up with a stump because you've got to dress it down each time and and that's what happened so uh, because of that i think all the fairs have converted now to a past the other the other thing that i think I, i gained from watching your demo is I, I wasn't expecting it, but you actually cut the back half of the cast out having finished, and, and so exactly you know where the where the frog is. So you are allowing the hoof, should we say, to function more, to, to flex. Oh, and, and and of course that's one of the arguments um, against bonding plates on. Despite the fact aluminium does have some movement in it, I think we can see that it restricts the movement. So this would appear to uh, to allow. More movement. Absolutely. I think Robbie Dawson was actually the one that, that said, he said, Derek, it's like having, it, it's like a, putting a reinforced wall in a garden to stop the, too much movement. So you can imagine now, we've got, we've got this wall now that would, if it was a thin wall, it would overexpand. Yeah. So by reinforcing it, it's still going to move, yeah. but it's not going to move as much. Because when it moves as much, you see not how much rub they get onto, onto, the, onto the, yeah. the shoe itself. So I think it's... I mean, I like happening. the fact that We've, I'm not saying we've gone full circle because no doubt other things will come up in the future but it looked like uh, glue shoes and bonding would replace nylon shoes 10 years ago but, but clearly from what you believe is that um, it, with, the, with the casting technique you can then put a, a traditional nailed shoe back on Absolutely, because what you've done is you've doubled the thickness of your hoof wall, yeah. if not tripled it sometimes if it's mm-hmm. really thin. You can nail any shoe to it and uh, you, know, you carry on. So, and you can keep nailing on and on. 
until their cost wears out. Okay, so as if it wasn't enough, getting the quick shoe which moved on to being the former hoof shoe going, developing your own casting material and technique, you've now got another arrow, shall we say, in your quiver, which is uh, the 3D printing of pads, and I'm sitting here surrounded by them, so we'll get a few pictures for people to understand, but, but the, the first question I have to ask you, Derek, is why? Why 3D printing? Uh, I would say probably because I can. Um, <laughs> that would be my first answer, but the second answer is I was trying to create a shoe I could cast on. A, a polyurethane shoe I could cast yeah. on, so it had little bobs on the side. I could cast it on, and there'd be no nails, and I could race a horse, which I did. I actually raced a horse in Dubai with it. And then I brought it out to Newmarket. I came out, flew home from Dubai for a weekend and put on a horse here in Newmarket. And then two days later, the shoe was finished. Because so, of the tarmac. Because of the tarmac. So it, it is not. It is, there's got no base of yeah. qualities to it whatsoever. And I think it was. I think it was Yogi Sharp said to me. He said. Why don't you make a pair that you can nail on? And then I started just because I mean I've been designing all this time on my mm. iPad and iPad Pro and pencil, and I thought, right, oh, that's actually not a bad idea. So I said, I'm going to try and emulate a barefoot. Because in my opinion, if I can emulate a barefoot under a shoe, it's going to be positive, a positive impact for the foot. Because I've seen what it can do as a barefoot, and that's how it's evolved. So, and, and, yep. Well, I was going to say, so in simple terms. Most of your pads, if not all of them sitting around here, are a rim pad, so they don't cover the whole of the hoof, but they, uh, in various ways, they produce digital support. So there is a raised frog in the pad. That is correct. But we can already buy pads like that. Absolutely. So what is the advantage of buying your pads? The advantage, I'll tell you what, what I've done. If you look at the frog itself, is I'm trying to actually make it to look like a frog. Yeah. Um, I can change the, the variety of thicknesses, the degree, the, 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 the width. The, I can change any aspect of this pad overnight. So I can then take a bespoke situation. For example, if I've got a horse that's 20 centimetres wide and 50 centimetres long with a frog that's 2 centimetres wide, I can make a pad for that. Okay. You know, you can't do that in the past. No, and, and I, I love... PM pads, but they're a blinking nightmare on a narrow foot yeah. getting the, the shoe fit. Okay, so you can make a bespoke pad, but that's fine that you can do yeah. it, and I think your machine costs... £1,000. Okay, so yep. $1,250, yep. and you can make your own. But yep. every farrier is not going to do that, are they? No, not at all. So, so they, some of them need to contact you, yep. or, or if you get franchising... Yeah, Strom's home, everyone. Yep. But how, do, how does that work? I mean, if I phoned you up and said, Derek, I've got this horse, it's got a five-inch by five-inch foot, it's got quite a narrow frog, it's, uh, it's contracted heels to two inches, I need a frog support yep. pad. It'll be waiting for you at the shop tomorrow afternoon. Okay. That's basically how it works. And I've had it. I mean, people from all over the world have sent me diagrams, photographs of the horse's feet. Okay. And so I what do you need? You need... You need, do you need a calibration on the photograph so you know no, the... No, not at all. I need a calibration. I need a tape measure of the width yeah. and the length. Yeah. And I can work it out from there. And, and basically, um, I mean, it's Alex, Alex Ridgway actually came up last week and actually did a designed an entire shoe um, for a laminitic horse like a clog with, and, and did it almost like to scale, yeah. which I could copy and then put up. So if you can think it, 
But how long does it take you to convert a farrier either sending you a photograph or an idea to actually... I don't mean the, the yeah. how long does digital printing, yeah. but I mean yeah. for you to program your printer to start making If it's it. a complex model, it's about an hour. If yeah. it's a slightly narrower, wider, five minutes. Yeah. So it, it all depends on the complexity. But if you said to me, oh, my foot is uh, two centimetres wide, 20 centimetres long, that's less than five minutes. So what's the long-term plan with, the, with this long, product? Long-term plan. I'd like, well, because you can actually buy all the files I create yeah. are relatively bought online. So you can actually print them out because it's all digital. Yeah. So if, if, if someone in Australia says, I want this file, I email it to them, they plug it into their printer, and they can print out their that bespoke pad wherever they are in the world. So my plan is to eventually have you know, printers all over the world. I've got them in Bahrain, I've got them in Dubai, Australia, um, and there's four here. Here in the UK? Four. four. The UK. Yeah, well, I've got three. I've got Yogi Sharp's got one, and yeah. then Stromholm's got one. Yeah, that makes um, five, by the way, Derek. F- five in the UK? Yeah. Correct. So what <laughs> I say? Seven. That, that's why we're, yeah, we're, yeah. why we're farriers, not yeah. accountants, Derek, is the ability yeah, to count. Um, I've got okay. eight around the world. That's and uh, interested in America yet? Um, yeah, actually I have. Individual owners in America have contacted me. Yeah. So that, that's a very, very good start. And um, yeah, I think it'll be... Once, once I get out to America... I know, you plan to get out there yeah. next year, don't I you? I do, yeah. End of next year, yeah. So at the moment, though, what does a bespoke pad cost to the farrier that get, or, or a pair of them, shall we say, that gets on to you and... And orders them. Simon, it's all based on print time, eh? Um, so basically, I'm charging two pounds per hour to print. So if it's if it's a four hour print, it's eight. It'll cost you eight pounds. Yeah. Um, and that's the average. Probably a one a one thirty a hundred and thirty millimeter wide pair would be eight pounds, and then from there it goes up. Okay, so that's uh, about ten dollars, just correct. over. Yep, ten dollars. Okay, but somebody that owns this machine, yep. they're going to be able to do it for a quarter of the price. Under two dollars. Under two dollars per pad. Correct. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, we've seen the advantages of production. Now, this material, is it brittle? It's actually not. Um, and I've tried all the materials, hey? Oh, goodness me. Uh, when I first, my first printer lasted me about two weeks because I went through all the material that it could print. Yeah. So the plastics, the recycled plastics, and they shattered within a day okay. of being on a horse. So they were very brittle. And then I found this. This is actually made for skateboard trucks. Um, you know, which has got to have a bit of elasticity to it. It yeah. is, it is very, very strong. So yeah, this is the closest. Because they, the they are very thin. The thing, the yeah. thing that impressed me. Yeah, but that's that is what we want, isn't it? Yeah. A big thick pad is harder to to target grams. your nails. Okay. It grams. And also, the, the actual frog itself is is the top the top two millimeter layer is yeah. solid, and then in between is actually honeycombed. Yeah. So it's 25% honeycomb. So that's what keeps okay. the weight off it as well. Yeah. So I've watched your printer going, and I've already put it on Facebook, and we had a huge amount of views. But at the moment, it's quite time-consuming, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But, but I know with all digital printing, the one thing is everything's getting cheaper and quicker, isn't it? So is there another machine along the line that's going to do this? Much well, I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite involved with the company that makes this printer. So, and, yeah. and we're going to work. I'm going to work towards getting something. You can do it in a fraction of the time and cost um, in the future. So, is that, that a I local think so, company? No, it's in America. It's actually California. Oh well. That's... So, but that's you know, unfortunately, listen. There are printers out there that could probably print fifty percent faster, but they cost twenty thousand pounds. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just beyond. It's beyond the realm of, of the average. 
anybody at the moment. You know, yeah. Professionals out there. So you would be anticipating then that commercially there would either be places like Stromsheim will print for their clients or maybe farriers that are attached to veterinary hospitals or something that would actually have quite a throughput of, of, of therapeutic pads, if we want to call them that, that have to be bespoke for each horse. Absolutely. That is the plan. I'd like every yeah. one hospital to have one, um, big farrier practices to have one. Because my printers, and I've got, at the moment I've got two printing in my garage, and I'm printing five prints per day, per printer. So I'm getting ten pads a day out of my two printers. You know, so if you work there, that's, that's 300 pads a month from yeah. my two printers, if I'm working them every day. Yeah. Once you set them, you walk away. They print yeah. for four and a half hours, you go back, you peel off the print, and you dial it up, and off you yeah, go again. So you don't have to be there. It's just, they go. They've got cameras on them, and off they go. So it, 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 it is It's effective. like having children, is it? You have to get up at 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, no, I've timed it out. I always put my long prints on from 10 o'clock. Oh. Onwards. <laughs> Cause you have Good plan. Because your Good 150 plan. prints can take six hours. Yeah. Well, we're all, we're, we're, we're all going to um, stay tuned in and see where it takes us, yep. or where, especially where it takes you, yep. Derek. So, very innovative and fascinating. And I, as I say, I was amazed when I saw it go in, and I look forward to, to seeing more of it. Now, I have to ask you, as an experienced farrier who's travelled the world and seen a lot, a deep philosophical question. What I would like to know is, what do you think is the most important thing that you've learned in life? Going the extra mile. Go the extra mile. That has been my philosophy. I would say that's one of them. Go the extra mile and never say no. Okay. I would say always say yes and find out what the answer <laughs> do you know is what what afterwards. <laughs> I, I always used to say that. I never said no. No. Always said yes. Until somebody asked me to do something I really didn't want to do. And no. so, <laughs> so there's a limitation to that. Yes, but, but that, yeah, that would be my two philosophies. And I've, I've, I've lived by that for those two years. And so finally, uh, what are your future plans then? Right, so I'm looking um, at the end of next year to my son, well, my daughter and grandchildren in America, my son's in America, so I'd like to settle back there. Um, my son can sponsor me to go and live out there. We've just bought a place in Florida. So retirement, semi, I wouldn't say semi-retirement, semi but I mean, I've, I've got so much going on with my health costs. I'd like to do a lot more um, clinics out in America. I'd like to do a lot more lectures out there um, and, and, and pursue what I'm doing here. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. And I do want to still be involved in horses. Yeah. You know, I still love the game. Well, I'm sure it comes through the podcast, Derek. You still have absolute 100% enthusiasm for, for this craft, for shoeing horses, for fixing horses' feet. And, uh, you know, uh, it's an admirable trait, shall we say. And um, as I say, thank you for both showing me around this extraordinary training facility, uh, giving me a demo of hoof casting and talking to us on this podcast. Thank you very much. Simon, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So that was uh, a longer discussion than I normally have, but we had so much to cover. Um, it was also my very first recorded podcast after the lockdown here in the UK. I don't know whether I was a bit rusty. I hadn't done one for seven months, but we certainly looked at a lot of things. You could tell that the um, barefoot discussion we had, that we were clearly on different sides, but we had a professional discussion. And, and just for those who didn't know the reference to Zola Budd, she was a South African of English descent, and she swapped to England as a runner in the Olympics, and she was a barefoot prodigy. 
she did fail to win the Olympics, but in the process she tripped Mary Decker of the USA, so probably not too uh, popular in the States. We covered the three products that Derek has been closely associated with, and you can see that um, he's now well into his hoof casting. There is more than one version, um, but listeners should take a look into the methods of hoof casting because I actually think it's something that is proven very useful and is getting used more and more around the world. Uh, if you haven't heard about 3D printing with a view to how it's affecting hoof pads, again, you know, I, I put out a video on Facebook, but you ought to look into it. Derek has, uh, you know, I had to question him quite closely. I gave him the typical so what question. In other words, why do we need this? Why do we need another product? And he goes into depth with his answer and he's quite convincing about producing bespoke pads for farriers uh, to use on individual horses and how economically the price of that is coming down. And also that led us to discuss a little bit of digital support, something that I'm very keen on, something that I think in the last 10 or 20 years has come to the fore an awful lot. So it was a long interview and we covered a lot of ground and I hope to have another one out with another interesting guy sometime in the not too distant future. Thank you for listening. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.